Uh, so let's start with something that uh, if you've grown up in church, if you've heard a lot about Jesus, learned about Jesus growing up as a kid, might feel a little bit heretical as I say this at first. <laughs> uh, it might feel a smidge like heresy, but let's jump in. Jesus wasn't born aware that he was the Son of God. But that simmer for a second, let your internal wrangling happen. Jesus wasn't born aware that he was the Son of God. Which is to say that Jesus didn't come out of the womb speaking the perfect wisdom of God and like taking on the Pharisees and calling them a brood of vipers, right? Like Jesus didn't come out of the womb actually speaking because he was literally a child. You see, Jesus wasn't born a mature adult. He had to grow into an awareness of being the son of God. Think about this with me for just a minute here. I hate to disappoint you, uh, but baby Jesus didn't just show up on the scene uh, and announce to Mary and Joseph, congratulations, earthly mom and dad, you have born the Savior of the world. You may not be aware, but I am the Messiah, and uh, I've come to save you from your sins, and I'll start by fielding some questions. That's not how that happened straight out of the manger. That's just not how it went down. And not only did Jesus not come out of the womb speaking like that, he literally didn't speak at all, which is to say, I know this feels a little bit radical. He was a baby first. He was a baby. By default, most of us have this impression about Jesus, mostly because we haven't thought about it, which is fine. That's fine. Most of us haven't thought about it, but we have this impression that Jesus just somehow always knew everything from the moment he came out of the womb, as if sort of like Jesus had seen the movie in advance. Right? But he's literally flesh, fully human, and with all the limitations of that. So he had to grow into an understanding from that flesh of what it means to also have the essential nature and character of God. He was fully God and fully man. We're not going to go into all that, but it gets at the theological middle of these questions. And actually, if you think about it, it's a little ridiculous how how, how we think about Jesus, the baby. Like last week at Christmas, we might have sung... Away in a manger. No, that, that one, right? I got some vibrato, y'all. So, that, that one verse where it's the cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes. The little Lord Jesus. Thank you, yes. <laughs> That's who we're talking about, right? Jesus? The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes. The little Lord Jesus, no crying That's not right. Like, Jesus cried. Right? Like, every time we sing that, I think, I'm pretty sure the baby Jesus cried because he was a baby. We think he came out of the womb with gold fleece diapers and having, like, a complete knowledge of everything. Right? Ricky Bobby. So, so Jesus... Jesus didn't, didn't come out of the womb sort of saying to himself on the inside... He didn't come out of the womb going, man, I can't wait for all of my motor skills to catch up with all of my knowledge so that I can teach all these ignorant people. In terms of his self-awareness, he hadn't seen the movie in advance and he was just a baby in a manger, just like every other baby, which means this. And this is radical when you think about this. Jesus had to learn his calling, his identity, the same way we do. He had to live by faith 
the same exact way we do. Now, of course, huge difference. He did those things perfectly. He had a perfect relationship with the Father through the Spirit in ways that helped him understand completely, perfectly, without sin, his calling, his identity, who he was as Messiah. It's a crazy thought, but through his perfect relationship with the Father, through the Spirit, Jesus had to grow into not just an awareness of being the Messiah, which, you know, when angels show up at your birth, it's kind of clear something special is going on. He didn't just have to grow into an awareness of that. He had to actually grow into the perfect character and nature and essence of God the Father and the Spirit in him that constitutes being the Messiah who can actually make a perfect sacrifice for us. That's pretty cool, really. The same Spirit we have available to us is how he grew into that. So the question for us today that we're going to look at in Luke 2 is how did Jesus go from child in a manger to Savior in the world? How did he go from child in a manger to Savior of the world? What happens between the manger and ministry? And what can we learn from Luke's account of Jesus' childhood? So jump in with me. We're going to look at Luke 2, but we're going to start at Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 80, and then we're going to go straight to our passage in Luke 2.40. So here at 180 here, we have a description that Luke uses of John the Baptist to compare um, to Jesus here. And all of the four Gospels, by the way, make a very clear point, a close link between John the Baptist and Jesus, which means when all four Gospels say something, it's pretty important. So look with me at Luke 1, verse 80. We see here a twofold description of John the Baptist. The child grew and became strong in spirit. Two things here. This is about John the Baptist. Grew and became strong in spirit. Now jump down to our passage today, Luke 2.40, where we pick up this description of Jesus' growth. Luke 2, verse 40. Luke, describing Jesus, says, The child grew, number one, and became strong, number two. Same thing as before with John the Baptist. But keep reading, we actually get more than that. It's a twofold description of Jesus as contrasted with John the Baptist, which is meaningful. We'll get there in a second. Keep reading. The child grew and became strong. This is verse 40, talking about Jesus, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So four things described there grew strong. I'm sorry, grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So a fourfold description of Jesus. Let's look at these for just a second. The first one is real simple. He grew. It says he grew. Jesus grew. Don't, don't gloss over this. It seems small, but it's big. Right? Like Jesus grew. We like the concept of little baby Jesus in the manger, and that's good. But we cannot keep him there. We've got to get past Christmas Jesus to Easter Jesus. He has to be ready to take on the powers of sin and death and hell and, and be prepared for the cross, Right? Which means he grew into that. The second thing it says is he became strong. Now that's not just physical stuff, of course. That's actually spiritual strength. It says he grew, he became strong. Third thing, he was filled with wisdom. Luke adds that to the description of John the Baptist. And then it says the favor of God was upon him. Another thing he adds to the description of John the Baptist. Which is to say, Luke is saying, listen, John the Baptist is great and all. Jesus is better. Now, keep... Keep looking at this here a little bit uh, because he's also, Luke is also drawing our attention 
and his description of Jesus to description of Samuel in 1 Samuel 2.26. 1 Samuel 2.26, which mentions about Samuel that the favor of God was on Samuel's life. Uh, Samuel was born in the temple, raised in the temple. Mom said, Samuel, I heard from God, that's his name. Samuel is given to the temple for the purposes of God. So look quickly at Luke 2.52 at the end of our passage there. Luke is drawing our attention there to Samuel by being uh, explicit about saying that the favor of God was on Jesus as a way of saying just like Samuel. In fact, we have those two passages here, Luke 2.52 and 1 Samuel 2.26. You'll see they basically say the same thing. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Anyone reading Luke 2.52 who knew their Bible at all would go, oh, that's exactly like Samuel. That's exactly like Samuel. So putting together everything that Luke does here, what I want you to notice is a few things. First, the description of Jesus is twice the description of John the Baptist. Luke begins his passage 40 through 52 and ends it by pointing out God's favor is on Jesus. And he draws our attention to the description of Samuel, whose name means heard from God, and who is like Jesus, meaning Samuel is like Jesus, And this passage here and this stuff about 1 Samuel is one of the very few places in Scripture we get all together where there's a birth narrative that's anything other than blah, blah, blah was born. That's what you get in Scripture most of the time. And there's an actual story of the birth. It's Scripture saying this is significant. And so Luke is saying here, in effect, in our passage in Luke 2, he's saying, in effect, John the Baptist was great, Samuel was great, but Jesus is twice what they were. You think what what you already know of the work of God was cool? Watch what I do with Jesus. God's work in this Messiah is going to blow you away compared to what I've done before. And again, how did Jesus become the Son of God, through which the Father accomplished our salvation? Was, was Jesus ready for the cross coming out of the womb? No. He grew into that readiness, perfectly, of course, without sin, of course, but He did grow using the same exact Holy Spirit we have available to us. When you sit and simmer with that just by itself, that's pretty mind-blowing stuff. Let's keep reading. Luke 2.42. We'll pick up this story, which is basically the, the, the best and most complete story um, almost the only thing we have about Jesus' growing up years. Luke 2.41, Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the fat feast of the Passover. Now press pause real quick here. Um, his hometown of Jerusalem was about 80 miles uh, from... Naz- I'm sorry, hometown of Nazareth was about 80 miles from Jerusalem. And it would have taken them about three days to get there. This is helpful for us to know soon. We'll come back to it later. Luke is careful to, to note here in verse 41 that both his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, which is a little bit exceptional. Uh, it doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but when you consider that only men were required to go to the Feast of Passover, and often the women and the children did not accompany them, Luke is being careful here to help us see that both of Jesus' parents went every year. So Luke is making sure that we understand that Jesus comes from a faithful Jewish home. A faithful Jewish home who understood, at least at some level, who this kid was and what he was called to do. Now, they didn't understand everything, of course. We'll see that later. Um, Jesus basically says, "Uh, why did you not know this? 
but they knew enough um, about their mission. And they were faithful parents. And Luke wants us to see that. So verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, which is about the time you decide if a, if a, if a boy is ready to be a rabbi, a Jewish teacher of the law. And so he went up because Jerusalem's on a hill, according to custom. Um, that, that might be like Moses going up to get the wisdom of God and coming back down, which Luke says later. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Again, this is Luke saying they did this every year. The whole family, in fact. They, plural, went up according to custom. And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, long feast of seven days, as they were returning home, (laughs) the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh. His parents didn't know it. (laughs) Can you imagine? Uh, We've lost the Messiah. His parents did not know it, verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. Now this sounds like a major oversight, right? Like, call the authorities, let's get DCS involved. But it was common to caravan together as a family. In fact, it probably wasn't just their family. It was probably some other friends uh, from their hometown of Nazareth going together. And, and given that Passover was the longest feast, the largest feast on the Jewish calendar, and it kicked off the whole year, they were probably traveling with many others from their hometown. So, so supposing them to be in the group, um, because listen, he's 12 years old, uh, supposing him to be in the group, he knows what he's doing, he's been with us before, he knows the drill, we leave on this day, why wouldn't he be with us, right? So like, let's not call DCS yet. So, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, they were turning, he stayed behind in Jerusalem, parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Keep reading, verse 46. After three days, meaning from the time they left Jerusalem to the time they found him, after three days they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, meaning the Jewish rabbis and teachers of the law, listening to them and asking them questions. This is our main picture in all of Scripture of the Messiah's growing up years. This picture right here. Jesus sitting at the feet of the rabbis, discussing the things of God. Now, if you've been a parent um, and you've got kids, you begin to have this point as they grow up where you sort of wean them off you having to watch them constantly, like when they're babies. And, and maybe you're like with your first kid, you're like, I never keep them out of my, like they never leave my sight. But then you wean them off so they can kind of play by themselves uh, a little bit. That's all parents do this. Um, so you probably had this time where <laughs> helicopter parents unite, um, where where you're like, oh, I've been away for 30 seconds. I better go back and check. And, and you go back and, and the baby's fine. Like the baby's fine and you're the one freaking out and the kid's sitting there playing with Legos or dolls or whatever and, and you're the one who's freaking out and the kid's fine. That's the picture of sorts of what's going on here with Jesus when, when Mary and Joseph return and they find him at the temple and he's like, 
I'm good. What's wrong with you? Keep looking. After three days, they found him in the temple, verse 46, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, verse 47, were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He spoke with great wisdom that they had never seen in a 12-year-old. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, meaning they were annoyed at Jesus. This wasn't just like, oh, isn't it great that he knows all these things and he's wise and he listens to the Word of God and he's sitting with the rabbis. No, they're, they're annoyed. I mean, keep reading. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Look at Jesus' response, verse 49. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Which is to say, apparently they did not know. <laughs> Let that sink in for a second. We're going to squeeze a lot out of that question. Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? I think Jesus earnestly means this. Like, I don't think it's like teenage angsty. You're not my mom and dad. How would you not know? That's not it. I think he actually means, did you not know? I must be in my father's house. Like, how could you not know? You are the Joseph. We're going to get into teenage angsty Jesus, which wasn't real. It's my interpretation. But you are the Joseph and Mary who were visited by the angels when I was born, right? Magi and shepherds showed up with priceless gifts. You had a pretty clear sense that something special was going on and God had plans for my life that might be way beyond what you had imagined, right? right? Like, where else would I be? How is this surprising to you? They did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. Verse 50. They did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. <laughs> So according to Luke here, apparently they weren't tracking with Jesus. Keep reading. Verse 51. After all of that, it says he went down with them. Talked about that Moses going up the mountain to have the wisdom of God coming back down. This is Luke. He went down with them. And Jerusalem is on a hill, so it makes sense. He went down with them and came to Nazareth, the hometown, and was submissive to them. Now, don't gloss over this here in verse 51. Even Jesus had things to learn from being submissive to his parents. This is an amazing statement about Jesus' own commitment to growth. Listen to that. Think about that. The perfect Savior of the world was so committed to his growth that he submitted to his parents after they didn't get it. You tracking those of us who... Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a good thing Jesus was perfectly committed to His growth since there would be no atonement for sin without His sacrifice for us. Like Jesus was committed to His growth. He went home was submissive to his parents. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And here's that summary statement again. Jesus increased in wisdom, 
and stature and in favor with God and man. Which, if you think about it, it's a pretty cool thing to be able to say about someone, right? (laughs) She, he, they're increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What a cool thing to have someone say about you. Now, I love the picture that Luke gives us here of the, the growth of Jesus as a child. It's, it's the most extended, it's really the only passage we have about Jesus' uh, growth years. And I think there are a few things um, for us to take away here. The first is this. Jesus loved to learn about God through the Word of God. Jesus loved to learn about God through the Word of God. This was a fundamental part of his own growth process. It was a fundamental part of his preparation for ministry, of readiness for the cross. He found sitting among the teachers of the law and asking questions and learning about the heart of his Father in that process. Let me be real frank with you about this idea for just a second. We live in a culture that overemphasizes work and ministry as a primarily practical, hands-on endeavor. And that the life of the mind or spiritual truth or a depth of a personal relationship with God don't really matter much versus those hands-on, practical-only thing, things. And listen, I get it. I'm a metrics guy. I'm going to know exactly how many came to worship here and in Afton when we talk tomorrow and, and, and talk about the numbers. And, and, I, and I like to measure things. And I like to know where we are. But, but don't miss this. Don't throw aside the life of the mind and learning and time in the Word and time alone with God as impractical. Don't dare throw time in the Word of God away as impractical. We have this, we sort of come from this culture of get out there and start doing something tangible. Like that's what works. This can be dangerous and misguided and short sighted. It is work to study the things of God, it is work to study the things of God. And here's why this is important you cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. You can't do it. You cannot do the work of God without the wisdom of God. Let me say this in a little bit more of a a, a tangible way. Uh, When I am absorbed, when I am absorbed in pages of notes and studies and commentaries and I am praying for wisdom and guidance and I am writing and I am editing and I am fasting and I am praying. That is stuff that many people think is impractical. When I am deeply engaged in the Word of God as your pastor, that is when I am shepherding this flock. The impractical work of the Word is the most important thing you can do to have a deep and abiding and important and meaningful and satisfying and eternal relationship with God. There can be nothing more practical than keeping your soul fit for heaven. This is critical. This is critical. Because when we as a church stop short of our calling, because we are trying to do work that's not through the wisdom of God, 
And we become enamored with this ministry to self. Like, like all of this should be this directed, right? Like we, we Christians and churches are good at turning resources this way. When that begins to happen, it's because we have not done our homework of doing the work of God through the wisdom of God. Let me say it this way. When, when we lose a heart for the lost that comes from the heart of God, we have been unfaithful to God's call in our lives because we have allowed everybody else's wisdom to guide what we do. Because we've bought into impractical work of the world. If the Word doesn't do the work, none of this works. If the Word doesn't do the work, if the Spirit of God doesn't do the work, if we're not coming together to have the heart of God be in here because of the way that we have a relationship with God through the Word, none of this works. This being, being the church thing. It's why we say very, very explicitly, habit number four, pray and study the Bible. We say it clearly. Pray, study the Bible. It's one of our habits. When that becomes a habit, when that becomes a habit, we are acting like the Jesus who came before us, who loved to learn about God through the Word of God. Second thing is this, and we'll pick it up. Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Second thing is Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Think about what happens in the story there. Jesus' parents are annoyed when they find him at the, at the uh, probably the temple, sitting around the rabbis, and they say, Son, why have you treated us so? And, and Jesus answers their question by saying, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, Jesus is obviously making a statement about whose son he really is, right? Like, I'm his son. He's not being teenage angsty. You're not my mom and dad. He's not real. That's not it. But he is saying he is the true father. But also notice, at this age even, he gets his calling. He understands what he's doing. This is the first place we get in Scripture, and perhaps the only one, really, where we understand where as a child, here at age 12, he gets what his calling is, what his mission is. And it required growing into maturity. And so he answers their question when they find him, how could you not know that this is my work? My father's called me to something important and I want to be ready. My father's called me to something important and I want to be ready. Jesus' mission required growing into maturity. Simply put, to make this something that is applicable to us, does your mission require growing into spiritual maturity? Does your, does your calling in life, does your mission, do your goals for your life require you growing into a maturity like Jesus is? Or are your sights set so narrowly on piddly stuff of the world so that your personal earthly goals can actually be met by you and don't require the wisdom of God. Or for you to be focused on your growth like Jesus was. Maybe you feel little urgency to sit at the Word of God 
because your mission isn't calling you to anything important. Are we preaching? Jesus' mission required it. So should ours. Third takeaway. I promise I'll be nicer. Joseph and Mary's mission of preparing Christ uh, for his mission is our mission. Like there's a sense in which we have the same mission for ourselves, for our children, for our church. Um, This takes a little mental work to get here. So listen carefully. When Jesus says, I must be in my father's house, he says that as a statement of his mission, of course. It is also, by inference, a statement about Joseph and Mary's mission. Like, I'm the baby who showed up and angels came, right? So they had a sense of this. When Jesus says, did you not know? He means apparently they did. They were supposed to know. They were given the task of helping prepare Jesus Christ for his mission. And when angels and magi and shepherds show up and bring gifts, making clear the presence of Almighty God, you should have a sense of your purpose to prepare the Messiah for his task. Now, I know that we kind of all feel that way about all our kids. <laughs> um, but, but this is our task as well. Their mission for Jesus is our mission today. We've got to learn to raise babies for mission. We have to learn to raise babies for the mission of God. In every sense that that means. And we're going to start with ourselves and go into concentric circles that starts with us as individuals. And they're more tied together than we think. We've got to learn to raise ourselves, our children, and our church. When it comes to raising ourselves, we must realize we are not our own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were created for a purpose that is not yours alone. This is God's vision for your life that matters. And let me suggest that you must learn to preach the gospel to yourself every day. This will recenter your priorities around the mission of God. And if you don't know how to, how to preach the gospel to yourselves, if you don't know what I mean by that, then get into the Word. I said I was going to be nicer. Get into the Word. So that this can be something that's in your bones and in your heart. So that you know to preach the gospel to yourselves first. So you have a passionate love for the Jesus whose perfect sinless life was sacrificed so that you could have forever relationship with Jesus, with God the Father, through the Spirit. You must love that Gospel for yourself. It must be what you feed on. When it comes to the the second of these concentric circles, when it comes to raising children, uh, we must realize that they are not ours to be raised, to be respectable citizens, or to have a good job, but to be followers of Jesus. Please trash worldly expectations for your kids as the rubbish that the evil one can use to pervert them into an image other than Jesus. Raising your kids to be respectable, job-holding citizens is not going to get them into a forever relationship with God. 
The mission is to grow this baby into a disciple. Because this child is preeminently God's. You are a steward on his behalf. That's what it means to make disciples and to raise children. So, I'll try to say this nicely. Stop supplanting God's mission for his child into your mission for your child. There's a lot there. Uh, When it comes to raising the church, finally we must realize uh, that Christ is the head of this. Christ is in charge of all of this, realizing that we take our cues from Him. We take our understanding of what the work is for us from Him and not from man. We do not measure our effectiveness based on whether we do what other churches do or what others expect. We are effective as a body of believers if we raise disciples. We want to be disciple makers. We want to help people find and follow Jesus. We want to help people help people find and follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple maker. We want to help you help others find and follow Jesus. We are effective if we are about our Father's business of helping people find and follow Jesus. This is how we are effective or not. Churches do lots of things, but this is, this is the bottom line. The Great Commission is what we were told before Jesus left earth. This is what we are to do. This is our effectiveness or not measure. So the task, friends, for us, and we're going to say this succinctly in a way that incorporates everything we've kind of said already. The task that accommodates all these takeaways today is to sit at the feet of God so that you and those around you are ready for the mission of God. Sit at the feet of the Word of God so that you and those around you, those in your sphere of influence, those in your family, Uh, are are ready for the mission of God. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have given us a picture of your faithfulness to us in the flesh. That Jesus was committed to his growth so that his sacrifice for us works. Father, we give you praise and glory. What an amazing thing you've done for us in the person of your son Jesus. Make us, Lord, a mirror of his faithfulness to his own growth in relationship with you, that he sat at the feet of your word, which gave him the wisdom to say yes to a sacrifice on the cross for us. Lord, instruct us and feed us off that amazing truth, we pray. Amen.